Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Universal Dialect Show, show number 21. Uh, we're almost near the end of the year. We got Thanksgiving around the corner, and I brought another awesome guest on. Uh, his name is uh, Tony Brasunas. Uh, he's a writer, researcher, independent journalist, author of two, bro- two books, Double Happiness, One Man's Tale of Love, Loss, and Wonder on the Long Road of China, which I believe is uh, 2014 you dropped that. Is that correct? That's right. Okay, and then, um, so I was supposed to do this interview with you, but I messed up on the time about a month ago, and at that time, you hadn't dropped your second book, which is Red, White, and Blind, The Truth About Censorship in America. Has, has that dropped already? No, that's forthcoming uh, in January, so okay. it's uh, just about done. It's, I mean, the book is done. It's going to be out in January. All right, awesome, awesome. Uh, what's the page count on that? You know? Uh, yeah, sure. It's about 385 pages and then about 50 pages of footnotes. Awesome. <laughs> a lot of sources, a lot because it's you know writing about controversial stuff. You always got to back it up. I got you. I got you. You, you know you're gonna have those people out there gonna be like, "You're wrong here. You're wrong there." You know. Exactly. Now you got you got backup. You got ammunition. You know. <laughs> so Tony, uh, uh, I've 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 seen and heard you on a lot of different podcasts. Normally, my podcast uh, is deals in the paranormal and also with like art because you know i used to be a freelance journalist for a music magazine but i don't want it to be just about that i want it to be about things that i'm interested in and things that i kind of want more knowledge on and you delve or you used to delve in the political realm i don't know if you can still do i know you do research on it and i know you were a part of it at one time i don't know if you currently still do but the things that you were saying were very like caught, caught my ear and it's stuff that i wanted to learn more and hopefully um the audience will learn more as well so can you begin with your origin story and uh, what led you on your current path, please? Sure. Um, so I think the story could start. Um, I went to China right out of college and I spent a number of years there um, teaching English and then traveling. And that's what led to Double Happiness. That was my first book. Um, really opened my eyes to a lot of things. Um, then I came back to the United States. I lived in San Francisco for a bit and I started getting involved in politics Um on the left side, I was active in the Green Party there. I was doing a lot of writing. What, what year, I, sir? I'm sorry, what year? So we can get context, a little context. Sure, sure, sure. So so I'm writing Double Happiness at this period, and I'm living right. in San Francisco. So I'm back from China. So this is like 2003, 4, 5, mm. 6, 7, kind of that. I'm okay. writing Double Happiness. It takes me about 10 years to write that book. Um, that's about my experiences in China. So I'm still digesting all that. Meanwhile, I'm, I'm, I'm active in politics, and I'm writing about politics um, and I launched my own political web magazine called Garlic and Grass that is in San Francisco. And I, I had an opportunity to write a little bit like sort of this, as this deputized blogger for the San Francisco Chronicle and published a few pieces there. And I noticed that I began to notice that the media was biased in, in ways, you know, people talked about it, but I started starting to get really curious about the specifics about it and noticing about it. Um, and so I wrote about that a bit at Garlic and Grass, um, the media consolidation, um, a number of different topics there that weren't addressed in the mainstream media that I felt like were not being covered. And I got a, a number of followers, you know, through through email and things, I had a couple thousand followers. It was, you know, getting interesting. And then things shifted in my life. I started moving back towards the China thing. I published Double Happiness and I stopped writing about politics for a little bit. And then I got involved again. And this is where I think Red, White and Blind what led to the current book. The origin story of this really starts in 2015 and 2016. I was covering um, the Democratic convention between Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton, and I was writing about it from the Bernie Sanders perspective. And I was brought on board at Huffington Post, 
And so I was writing at Huffington Post about the uh, the um, primary, primarily from the Bernie Sanders perspective, again, which wasn't as the side that was as broadly covered. So a lot of my pieces got a lot of attention. Um, they got very popular, thousands of views, sometimes would hit 50,000 views or 100,000 views and make it to the front page of Huffington Post. And everything was going fine and going great. I was really um, active in the primary there. And then uh, about a week before the convention itself, so we're in July of 2016, uh, neither Bernie Sanders nor Hillary Clinton has gained uh, enough earned delegates to win the nomination outright. So it's going to go to the convention, be this contested convention, and the superdelegates, quote unquote, are going to get to basically determine the nominee. And the superdelegates, they get to vote with the strength of 10,000 voters, essentially, They're these sort of bigwigs in the party. And so I wrote this piece saying, you know, I think the superdelegates should select Bernie Sanders as the nominee. Trump has just won the nomination on the Republican side, and Bernie Sanders pulls a lot better head-to-head -head against Trump. And I really focused on the issue of trust, and that on this one issue, Bernie Sanders was pulling way ahead of Hillary Clinton on trust, and then that was going to make a big difference for independent voters who would ultimately be uh, deciding between Trump and the Democratic nominee. And so I made that case about trust and people's distrust of Hillary Clinton. I wrote the story, I published it, and went to bed, had a couple thousand, maybe 10,000 views or something. I wake up the next morning and it's gone. The piece is done. It's nowhere to be found. I would never write it again for Huffington Post. I was done there. I was sacked. I couldn't log on to the platform anymore or anything. And it was a really interesting story. Really, this is the moment that gave birth to what's now Red, White, and Blind that I'm about to publish here because I, I experienced censorship firsthand. And I also experienced something else firsthand that, that I think we should get into because this is a big part of the book is I also experienced firsthand the birth of what I call the new enlightenment. And this is the birth of independent media really coming into its own. Because what happened was, you know, I go online that morning, my piece is gone. There's people on these sort of subreddits and these different, you know, sort of uh, different forums saying, where's Tony Bersunis' article, where did it go? And they're trying to find it and, and somebody finds it and they're copying and pasting it. And I grab it and put it on my Medium blog, medium.com and put a link to it on Twitter get on the plane and fly to Philadelphia for the convention. Um, and when I am in Philadelphia and people are coming up, it's like, oh yeah, Tony Bersunis, yeah, I read your article. I don't know why it was taken down from Huffington Post, but I read it at, at you know your other place. And what I realized and what I would learn through the data is that that piece became my most widely read that year. Uh, it was read more widely than any of my Huffington Post articles. So it was this very interesting experience of experiencing censorship firsthand, but also experiencing the birth of something new, of independent media, of these big media behemoths trying to censor us, trying to silence us, trying to pass out their own disinformation and actually getting, um, well, let's get into it. Sometimes they're successful and sometimes they're not. And so that's that's really the birth of Red, White and Blind. Okay, so um, there's a couple of things to break down here. One, you wrote an article and it gets taken down, but obviously it struck a chord. You know, and then the fact that it struck a chord and then it gets taken down. I mean, people aren't stupid, you know, <laughs> not only are people not stupid, but I write about in my book, this thing called the Streisand effect. I don't know if you've heard yeah. of this. Yeah. So Barbara Streisand, right. She, she has this uh, fancy mansion on in Malibu right near the coast. And um, somebody posted a picture of it right as there was this debate in like the county council about, you know, the size of, of uh, the size of homes right next to the coast and global warming, all this stuff. And so the picture went online. Somebody posted a photo of like a drone photo of her, her mansion or something. And she asked for it to be taken down. And so she raised this big stink. 
And what is really interesting is before she had raised the stink, you know, maybe the photo I think had been downloaded like 26 times or something. A few people had seen it. But once she raised a stink, suddenly everybody wanted to know what's this photo that Barbara Streisand wants to censor, wants to hide. And then there's tens of thousands of people looked at it. So the Streisand effect is this thing that I, I think is very salutary for human, not just for the human spirit, but also for this issue of censorship and disinformation. When we hear of something that is, we're not supposed to look at, when we hear of something that's taken away from us, that's being kept secret, we inherently want to know what it is. And that's one of the major forces that is on our side in this sort of battle of information. Right, because our interest gets piqued. And then yeah, it's like, why, why don't they want me to see this photo? Like, right. I might not be here a minute ago, but now I want to see it because I'm not Right, exactly, exactly. All right, so... Um... They really got to hide here, right? <laughs> They got a lot to hide. <laughs> I mean, you, you've done the research, so I'm pretty sure you know they have a lot to hide. It's just that society, uh, we're being distracted on so many levels. Uh, but I think we're waking up. Supposedly, that's what people say. Um, so so when your art article gets uh, taken off, you can't log in. I, I take it that you didn't get an answer as to why. Did anybody talk to you and say, this is why your article was pu was was pulled off? No, I have several theories, and I write about that in Red, White, and Blind. I have a whole chapter that sort of goes into that experience. I did have a buddy of mine. It's like a friend of a friend, lawyer, write them on legal letterhead. You know, what happened to Tony Persons? You can't just yank this guy down. <laughs> and they gave us this sort of like middle finger response that quoted this passage in the terms of service that was just about, you know, you can't write something that we don't think is accurate or something. So it was without getting, they didn't get at all specific. They stayed very vague and just said, you know, you're done. Um and I never heard more. We tried to, to, to rattle the chain a little more. Nothing more came out of them. So they weren't going to be forthcoming about it. I have several theories. Um, we could get into them if you want. I don't know if it's that important, but um, but we certainly well, could. Get into some of it. Get into Because it sure. probably is important, you know? Yeah. So so a couple theories. So the first theory <laughs> is, um, you know, I'm writing about the Clintons. And uh, writing about some of the reasons people don't trust Hillary Clinton. So I mentioned some of the things that went on, um, not trying to prove that they're true, but saying, look, some people think that the Clintons have done this or did this. And um, there's a lot of people that say, well, you're lucky. <laughs> Somebody in the last podcast I was on, he's like, oh, when you said you woke up the next morning to find your article gone, he's like, I thought you were going to say you didn't wake up the next morning because <laughs> the Clintons have this reputation. Um, yeah, they do. <laughs> they have right. a no, body count. Up, I did wake up the next morning. Um, <laughs> so that's one theory, right? It's just the Clintons are are a hair trigger and they they yank things down. And the Huffington Post certainly is was closely connected to the Hillary campaign in some ways, uh, connected to that media establishment. So that's certainly one theory. They just took it down because it's like we're tired. But I had written things that were, you know, I've been written po writing positive stuff about Bernie Sanders and negative things about Hillary Clinton the whole time. In fact, the very first piece I wrote. Uh, for Huffington Post was a piece called, um, it, was the, it was the year when they re really privilege was this big topic and check your privilege and your privilege is showing all this kind of stuff. Right. And it was, people were saying it like, you know, if you're going to support Bernie Sanders, like check your privilege, kind of just sort of this idea of sexism that like, how could you vote for a man, you know, check your privilege. And I was just like, look, let's, let's be honest about this. Like if you don't need your student debt forgiven, if you don't need a $15 minimum wage, if you don't need Medicare for all, like if you don't need these things that Bernie Sanders is promising, you're the one that's privileged, right? If you can just go and vote for the status quo for eight more years, you're happy. So the article was titled, um, check your privilege if you're okay with eight years of Hillary Clinton and eight years of the status quo. Because I thought that was the more privileged position. Yeah, I don't really need any of this stuff Bernie Sanders is talking about. I'm happy to 
to vote for the woman because I want a woman president. And, you know, that's a, its own argument. So anyway, so I'd written a number of things that were not positive by Hillary Clinton. So I'm not sure that's the theory. My other theory is that you have in you have in our country, the way our political system works and the two parties, and I have this poster above me that- Yeah, I, the, the, the elephant, elephant and the elephant. Dogs, right? They're yeah. playing with the beach ball and the people underneath are the normal citizens. They're like, do we get to play with the beach ball? And the donkey, the only like, no, 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 you never get to play with the beach ball. We, no, just, no, no. we, just, pitch, we just push it back and forth. Um, right, so you have this issue that, you know, every four years there's these big national elections and they want to bring as many people into the fold as they can. They don't want people getting all independent and opting out. So they let lots of ideas flourish. You have these alternative candidates, the Bernie Sanders, the Dennis Kucinich, the Howard Dean, you know, all these people that get to try to bring people back into the system who are maybe leaving the system. But then at a certain moment, when you get close to the convention, it's like, okay, enough, enough with the, the foolery. Time to now vote for the person we already pre-selected for you. So now it's time to get in, get in line behind Hillary Clinton or the Republican side is its own little animal we could get into. So there's an element, I mean, the timing was exactly when they were basically starting to pare back all of the pro-Bernie stuff. I mean, and I was at the convention and it was just outrageous. The level of wit, the level of the media manipulation of how the convention was presented on television was stunning. I knew I was probably gonna see a few things. Oh, they're probably gonna just make it look like everybody's for Hillary and nobody's for Bernie Sanders. But it was stunning. I mean, they literally were, right, were running white noise machines over all of the Bernie Sanders areas in the right. convention. They hired uh, actors to come in and sit in their seats. So they banned all of the Bernie Sanders volunteers from the convention. I mean, they did so many things to make it look like everybody in Philadelphia was behind Hillary Clinton. When the fact was, it was, there were a lot of Hillary Clinton supporters there. And I'm not saying there weren't, there are a lot of people that wanted her to win the nomination, but it was a minority. It was like a large number, but it was probably like, 60 40 in favor of bernie of all the people that were in philadelphia so right. it, was, it took it took some work to make it look like everybody was for hillary clinton so right. you know, so there's this whole theory that, that that that's what happens it sort of let a thousand flowers bloom during the early segment of the primary and then as we get towards the convention it's time to get rid of all the other stuff it's going to be hillary against trump and everybody else needs to go and so it's time for people like tony Bersunas to be done writing at huffington post so that's 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 my other main theory. I have a couple of random other theories, but those are the main two. I think it was I probably one of those two things, but they they weren't going to admit it. So <laughs> they they they'll never admit. It. But um, okay. So you went to that convention and you noticed that there was like some tomfoolery going on. But uh, I think uh, on one of one of the podcasts you had said that you had run into somebody, maybe a media person, and they had told you something that that was going on. Do you, do you remember that? I don't know if I don't know if you're one of the things one of the things that I that I experienced there. And I mentioned this earlier is this sort of birth of the new enlightenment. What I call is, is basically this idea that because of the Internet, we can share news and opinion with each other without any intermediary. And this is like the first enlightenment that happened when the movable type printing press was invented, when suddenly people could write books and read books on their own without the church or the feudal lord saying, OK, you can have this book. And so suddenly literacy expanded and then. That led to the Enlightenment. That led to the Constitution of the United States. That led to the revolutions, right. power structures. So we're in that kind of phase now, and and what we're what we're seeing is is podcasts like this one. You know, you and I can talk. We can upload this. Thousands, millions of people can look at it and and right. have their mind changed or not um, without anybody else saying so. So what I experienced in Philadelphia was um, I was a citizen journalist there, and so I would just flip open my phone and record myself and put it on Facebook and, and say, here's what's really going on. Because as I said, I noticed 
the amount of um, distortion that was going on. And so one, one experience was I was one of the first people, I maybe I broke the story that the Bernie Sanders volunteers were being barred from the convention hall. That's it. That's the one I'm talking yeah, about. I was yep. there outside, sort of just on the green, and, and some people came out and they were all distraught and pissed off, you know, obviously, because <laughs> there's like thousands of people that had traveled across the country that have been like super, super worked their butts off for Bernie Sanders. And there's this sort of reward of you get, you're not a delegate, but you're an official volunteer. And so you get seated at the convention and, and this whole thing. And so when they got banned, I just put a, a, you know, I just mentioned on Twitter, I said, uh, you know, breaking news, Bernie Sanders volunteers are barred from, you know, kicked out of the convention. And yeah, it got thousands of retweets and became, you know, it sort of broke that, that story. And that was an experience, again, of me participating in, you know, nobody had like paid me to go there. I just, you know, right. went there on my own and was, uh, was breaking news. Yeah, you had like an intuition that to, to, to want to go there. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. What do you think of Bernie Sanders now? And the reason why I ask that is because I'm not really into politics, but I mean, I can't help but see news here and there. And I know that twice he was favored and twice he bowed out and essentially gave up. And then there was money that was he was backed by a lot of money and that money wasn't given back to the people that. You know what I mean? So like I did get I did get it's interesting. I donated a lot of money to Bernie Sanders. I got a partial refund of like the money that I donated that was above the amount you're supposed to donate in a year. So I think I got like a seven hundred dollar check. Some of the money came back. But no, it's it's a really good question. And I think um Bernie Sanders, um I was fairly cynical about politics in 2015 when I got on board with Bernie Sanders and I decided to kind of suspend some of my disbelief and say, you know, like a part of me is telling me in the back of my head, like these guys are all liars and crooks. <laughs> um, and some of them are, probably most of them are either fools or cowards or crooks. Um, it's probably, I'd say, the makeup of the majority of Congress at this point, um, although I, I'm always happy, happy to be proven wrong. I think Bernie Sanders, yeah, I think he, he had some, he had a real opportunity to push the envelope and chose not to, and chose to sort of uh, back down and get in line. And I saw that first in 2016, um, right after the convention, but actually throughout it. I mean, I wrote a lot about um, some of the irregularities in the elections right. in Arizona, New York, um, number of states that he should have contested. And it's really interesting to see now that the elections are being contested from the right and people are getting all upset. But the elections, our elections have been really problematic for most of this century. Uh, we started shifting to electronic voting machines in the first decade um and now the shift is almost complete and there's there's a lot of issues with our elections that might be my next book um something i care a lot about and i didn't spend the time researching i wrote the book about the media but yeah so that happened with bernie sanders in 2016 um i supported him again in 2020 um a, a slightly less enthusiastically but um and then we had that iowa fiasco where that um that caucus was almost certainly rigged by the shadow app. And I wrote a whole long article about it and a, you know, a large blog entry where I did a ton of research. And I mentioned that a bit in my book, but again, my book, Red, White and Blind is more about the media rather than the parties. And right. so it's really analyzes not was the election rigged, was it stolen, but how does the media cover it? Because I realized that if I just wrote the book about the elections, you know, you're up against this really intense system that prevents the discussion of it. And I realized it's really the media is the big issue, even before the political parties and the elections, is the fact that the media creates what we think is going on. 
I, you know, you hear the word narrative used a lot. And I really use that. I really delve into that word in red, white, and blind because the narrative is, it's not just uh, Bernie Sanders is running for Congress or running for the presidency. It's the whole story behind it. It's this, you know, he's a progressive and he's not electable or he's an angry, sexist Jewish guy. You know, all the, the whole narrative that is created around it by the media, teaching ourselves the literacy, what I call media consciousness, to understand that those narratives is, is more important, I think, than understanding whether the elections are rigged or not. Because what that does is that allows us, it's the idea of like teaching a man to fish versus giving him a fish. Right. If you learn media consciousness, that's what I want people to get out of my book, because that's learning how to fish. You can read my book. I'm going to tear apart, you know, a ton of narratives, a ton of stories in the book. You're going to learn the truth about, you know, the origin of the coronavirus and Jeffrey Epstein, all this stuff. I really delve into a lot of it. But what I really want people to get is media consciousness, is the ability to say, OK, here comes a narrative. Who's saying it? What are they saying? What do they want me to feel? You know, what do they want me to be scared or angry or happy? And really think about that. And who's not able to, who's not allowed to, to speak on this issue? And that's why I propose a balanced media diet, because I think that's the way to get to media consciousness. Yes. So, so with Bernie Sanders, you know, I mean, yeah, by, by now, at this point, <clears throat> gone through COVID and the pandemic and the Ukraine war. Yeah, there's very little left of the real fiery anti-establishment progressive Bernie Sanders that was there in 2015. It's, he's quite a bit more just like a Democrat, um, which I, I don't support either of the parties. So I'm not really supporting Bernie Sanders anymore. Um, right. It's like religion in a way, like you could be spiritual, but organized religion. I, I don't know. I don't trust it. <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's um, that was the first enlightenment. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So you've done a lot of a lot of research on censorship. And I know that in the last like few years uh, before COVID, during COVID and now censorship is at like an all time high. But in your research, uh, when would you say like censorship? Like, do you have any like uh, examples of censorship from the past? Well, sure. I mean, I start, so I start I start the book with Jeffrey Epstein and the origin of the virus because I want to I want to start on a nonpartisan place. I don't want people to say. Tony Bersunas is writing the Republican book or the Democrat book about censorship and disinformation. This is a nonpartisan issue. This is, you know, to the extent that people really get behind one of the parties, I think they're actually even more blinded. But the term red, white, and blind, I mean that to indicate we're all deceived to some extent. Like the deception and the censorship and the propaganda are so sophisticated that I can't just like say, oh, I'm Tony Bersunas, I'm a smart guy, I read a lot, so it doesn't affect me. No, it affects all of us. Right, all of right, us are right. to some extent deceived. And so we all have this path to walk and it's not like a short path. It's a long path of teaching ourselves to understand media narratives and to, to really think about it. And the idea that you can just not inhale and like, you know, you have people that you're into like, ah, I just don't read the news. I don't pay attention to it. And that's not an option either because the narratives, again, it's not just the news story. The narrative is what we think is going on here in our right. life. What know the enemy. <laughs> you know, what, what, why are people wearing masks right now? You know, why right. are people taking this injection? Why are people going to the polls to vote, right? And even if you think you can just sort of, I mean, maybe if you went off and lived on a mountaintop and like ate rocks, like you'd be fine. But, you know, for the rest of us, and, and even if you think you can opt out, it's going to come in through your family and your friends. So the real, the real path is media consciousness and understanding that like, as you make these important choices in your life, as you choose to 
pursue a career or uh, where are you going to live? Or, um, you know, are you going to travel? Are you going to get married? Are you going to have a baby? Are you going to have an abortion? Are you going to accept, take a vaccine? Are you going to own a gun? You know, all these kinds of choices we make as we go through life, media consciousness offers us the ability to make them a little more wisely rather than driven by the media deception and distortion. So that's, that's really the, um, the key point I want to make, but wait, you asked me a question. I might've gotten a little distracted there. Uh no, that was that was fine. It was more about like the censorship from the past. Like um because I mean, you know, like I said, the last few years censorship is at an all-time high, but it didn't start last 3-4 years. Censorship's been around for a long time. So I wanted to know in through your research, have you found examples of censorship in the past somewhat of this magnitude, if anything? Well, sure. So I mean, I, I focus a bit on the book in, in chapter 2, I go right into Operation Mockingbird, which is um the CIA operation that placed uh, CIA agents or recruited journalists into the CIA to basically manipulate narratives right at all of our mainstream media publications from the New York Times to CBS News to Time Magazine. I mean, Time Magazine actually had agents on the editorial board making decisions. So those kinds of decisions, um, they're making decisions about censorship. They're, they're pulling certain stories. They're uh, manipulating other stories. I distinguish in the book propaganda from censorship from bias these different kinds of things. And there's the different kinds of bias. There's innocent bias, uh, which I distinguish is basically just so we understand it. That's the bias you bring because of who you are, like what your life has done to you so far, race, <clears throat> gender, uh, class, background, country of origin, all that. So that's innocent bias. We all have it. It's good to understand it. You want to balance it, but that's innocent bias. Systemic bias is the bias you have based on, um, where you're doing your work. Like if you read a, an article that's just by like one lone guy, it's probably no systemic bias, but if somebody's writing for Fox News or NPR, there's gonna be the bias that comes from working at that organization. Correct. And then the third kind of bias is nefarious bias. And that's what I would say is like Operation Mockingbird stuff where they're actually deliberately, people are deliberately censoring or, or, or writing propaganda into our mainstream publications to deliberately deceive people, distort the story, all that kind of stuff. So yeah, so that kind of stuff has been going on for a long, long time. Uh, nefarious bias. Uh, Operation Mockingbird is the biggest revelation we have to date of it. You know, otherwise we have to kind of snuff it out ourselves. And I do a lot of that in Red, White and Blind. But yeah, Operation Mockingbird came out in the mid 70s. It was basically revealed that for 20 years, uh, there was all kinds of bias going on, uh, nefarious censorship and propaganda in our mainstream media. And then, you know, since then, certainly it's, it, it's continued because what we have is all the media, basically all of the mainstream corporate media is owned by five giant corporations. Correct. And so those five giant corporations, if there's something that they don't want you to think about or read about or talk about, it's probably not going to show up in a mainstream corporate. I mean, things get through, you know, it's like a sieve and, and some things every once in a while, so it's, you know, somebody gets through, um, but then that person usually gets, you know, fired or they get, it, it gets uh, censored as disinformation or something like that. So yeah, don't they, so, don't they also sprinkle the truth sometimes just to kind of, <laughs> just to trick us like a little bit oh, here and there? Yeah, no, the best propaganda is not, is mostly true. I mean, the best propaganda is always mostly true. Yeah. If you just read an article that's like completely out of left field, nobody's going to buy it. What the best, and that's why I say, you know, I spent a lot of time in China and like the Chinese propaganda system is, is very thick, but it's, um, it's not very sophisticated, you know? So a lot of people in China, you talk to them, they know their, their media system is, is propaganda. It's like, basically you have to kind of read the tea leaves there and you understand that the, this is what the government wants you to think about something. 
In the United States, I say this is the most sophisticated propaganda instrument that's ever been created. I mean, the fact that the New York Times is an outstanding, amazing, unbelievably dishonest uh, publication, but it's fabulous. I mean, you, you pick up a copy, the thing weighs about 10 pounds. <laughs> right. And, uh, you know, and in every issue, there's at least, you know, a half dozen brilliant articles, like really well, like, and maybe it's about, you know, a band or a restaurant or a home run or, you know, something. But, but within the news, every article is going to be, again, it's going to be like 75, 85% true. And then there's just this like, uh, and it isn't necessarily that there are even 15% lies. It might be 2% lies or, or 1%, but it might be 15% spin it in this way where the, it fits with the narrative. You know, right. so you it's, it's like, guiding you toward that narrative. Yeah. And guiding you away from other narratives right. because the most valuable asset that the corporate media has is the ability to write the narrative. When they lose that, which is what happened in 2016 with, with the Bernie movement and the Trump movement, when, when independent people like us can, can control and write our own narrative, that is terrifying to them. And that is, what, that is what these labels disinformation is really about. It's about basically labeling narratives that are outside of their control as false so they can be censored, taken down, things like that. So what's going on recently is pretty much Operation Mockingbird, but a little bit more modified, right? So it's, it really didn't die. They just modified it. Yeah, I have a whole section in, in Red, White, and Blind where I, it's called, like, do these mockingbirds still sing? <laughs> you know, and because um, that's why it's called Operation Mockingbird, right? The idea of a mockingbird is that um, one writer, like at the New York Times or the Washington Post, some prestigious place, might be CIA or might just be, you know, working for one of the, um, you know, one of the political parties or something like that, can write one article and then the other journalists and other ones hear it and like mockingbirds, it's call and response. And right. so then that same article gets blasted out. And this has a number of benefits because it, it first of all, it removes the need to like overtly conspire and collude. Right. So you don't have to get a you don't have to find that there was a text message between Joe Schmo at New York Times and Jane Doe at The Washington Post saying, OK, it's time to write an article about, you know, Afghanistan. No, they just see it in the news. They see it in the other paper and they say, OK, this is what I'm supposed to do. So it's a call and response. So there's no like there's no obvious collusion. The other thing that's really great about this from their perspective is that the science of propaganda has been quite to an art form over the last hundred years since it was developed in the 19 teens and 20s. And one of the core discoveries is that if people hear something multiple times from different angles, they tend to think it's the truth. Um, the brain, unless you really have media consciousness and you're aware. So like if you just hear like one random person say, oh, I think there's going to be a lockdown in two weeks. You're like, yeah, whatever. That's a stupid idea. But then if you hear it again from this other place and this other place and this third place, like, oh, I guess that's what's going to happen. You know, it just right. becomes the truth. Um, and that's the truth. And almost any story can can be, uh, you know, manipulated that way. So that's Operation Mockingbird. That's why it's called Operation Mockingbird. I mean, they named it themselves. Right. Um, right. Yeah. So that's that's uh, that's how it works. Yeah, it's like a virus and, and it's yeah. infecting regular people because even they're regurgitating with their <laughs> hearing in the news so an individual like your, like yourself and i we know kind of what's going on but we hear the talk from my unfortunately from my family and our friends regurgitating the same crap that they're hearing in the news 
and it's just be and it's on social media you read it i mean it's like all over the place the regurgitation of the bullshit excuse the expression <laughs> you know that's exactly right i mean i I've, I've had that experience a number of times where i'll hear somebody sort of email me or ask me about what about this and and here's what i think and then i'll realize that they're just basically taking exactly what appeared in npr or new york times or fox news or something and just sort of positioning as their own thought as if they thought about it they, they came up with it themselves right but again, I want to emphasize that it's not like other people get affected by that, but those of us over here, we're too smart for the propaganda and like it doesn't affect us. That's not how it works. We're all affected by it. We're all, we're all swimming in this water. And the trick is to see the water. The trick is to notice that there's water around us. Um, that's what makes it, that's what gives us the power, the consciousness uh, is the word that I use, the consciousness, because we're going to be, we're going to be manipulated and, and inundated with these narratives. The trick is, do we want to just sort of ignore them and pretend that they don't exist or just believe them? Or do we want to be conscious about them and say, okay, this right. is what's going on. And I think it's so important to be conscious about them because this is the most prevalent kind of deception in our lives today. There is, I don't think there's any other kind of deception that's as powerful. And deception's a big problem. When you get deceived about things, you make bad choices. You, you, sure. you uh, don't live the best life. So, Right, and I'm pretty sure um, during the the pandemic you had to wear a mask and so did i even though we knew we shouldn't have to wear a mask but we had to do it right i mean we got sucked into it too we didn't we probably didn't believe it but we just we had to go along um can you get into the the different enlightenments um i know you have like you, you talked about the first enlightenment and the second can you go a little bit more in depth in that do you mind that way uh whoever's listening can kind of understand that because i don't think they they make that connection with what's the enlightenment the first enlightenment which you talked about, which was the printing press and how it, how, how it uh, affects us today, you know, how it, how it translates today. Sure. Yeah, no, it's great. It's great. And it's, it's really cool. I try to do that with red, white and blind is, is step back and position where we are in history. So we realize that we're at, we're at a really critical moment in history. It's a fascinating time to be alive. So, yeah. So if we dial the clock back to like the 1400s, okay. So this is 600 years ago, something like that. And Europe is basically in the dark ages, right? So Europe is, is, this is, this is where Western civilization, what we call Western civilization is sort of being born. And yeah, Johann Gutenberg invents this. I mean, we've had, there were printing presses before, but they weren't able to print books very quickly. So he invents this printing press where you can move the letters around. So suddenly right. you can like, rather than having to make a separate plate for each page in the book, you could just use the same letters, move them around. Seems like an obvious idea, but it was a brand new idea. And lo and behold, within a year, he can print books much faster, more cheaply than anyone else. So he starts printing Bibles, and they're called the Gutenberg Bibles. And so it goes from like, you know, pretty much just the monks in the, in the you know, in the monasteries are copying right. the books to, and there's artisans that do it as well, to like anybody can print up these books. And so what that does, Europe goes from, there's about 50,000 books in all of Europe, 50,000 books, to within 50 years, you know, so after the printing press, there's 12 million. So there's only 12 million books floating around. So now the number of people that can read goes through the roof. And then the people, the number of people that can write starts to go through the roof. And then people start publishing their own books. And so then you start having this flowering, like what's going on today where people are sharing their ideas. And so people start to call into question the Catholic church and that the earth is the center of the universe, you know, and, and, uh, people start to call into question all kinds of things. And people start to want to have the freedom of speech and the freedom of the press and all these kinds of things. 
This leads to the Renaissance blossoming in art, philosophy, music. Um, and then this leads to the Reformation, which is sort of like the church having to go through all these changes leads to the enlightenment and, and the enlightenment is this birth of philosophy and politics and things like that. And science as well, really this is the birth of science. So, uh, so what happens is the Catholic church and the feudal Lord, they start really getting upset about this and scared. And so they come up with the inquisition and they start calling people conspiracy theorists. Oh no, that's today. They start calling them then they call them blasphemers and infidels. Right. That was the label in the day was like, oh, you're an, you're a blasphemer. You're saying things that go against the church. We're going to burn you at the stake. Like right. you're, you're a witch, you yeah. know, and literally are the inquisition. They put people on the rack. I mean, there's all these famous torture devices and it's right. basically for people that thought for themselves. And that was a <clears throat> thing. And it was a dark time, you know, I mean, it was at, at the same time, the enlightenment was blossoming, but little by little, you know, we start uh, seeing in the new world, which is just being colonized these revolutions start taking place. And over the course of a hundred years, the revolutions sweep the Americas from South America to North America, and including in this country, obviously. And people start saying, we want freedom and we want religious freedom. We just saw what happened when you don't have religious freedom. We don't like getting burned at the stake. Uh, right. We want freedom of speech. We've seen censorship. So that's how the enlightenment, it, it births this idea of people can think for themselves. And it disrupts this top-down distribution of information that you had. I mean, at that point, the church was like, here's how you get to heaven. You pay us this money, you know, these indulgences and stuff. You get to go to heaven. If you don't, you're going to go to everlasting hell and you're going to go to the dungeon, all this stuff. So that's the first enlightenment. And so that leads to the to our constitution. In the constitution, we have the freedom of the press and the freedom of speech. And I, I, I really link freedom of press and freedom of speech because they're almost the same thing. Freedom of speech is you can say anything with your right. vocal cords. And freedom of the press is you can write anything down. Right. So anything, any idea, you're allowed to. You're allowed to express it. And right. it's important because some people say <laughs> the, the press, they have this idea that it's only, well, you're not a journalist. You don't get the freedom of the press. No, there's no mention of journalists, of like professionals in the Constitution. Anybody can create a newsletter. Anybody can, like in today's world, you're a journalist. I'm a journalist. You can do it on email. You can do it in a podcast. You can, whatever it is, that's your freedom of the press. Freedom of speech is you can say anything you want. Um, so that's the first enlightenment. And that, that gives birth to the United States of America and the French Revolution, the modern French thing. And, and all over the world, this, these ideas started spreading. And so fast forward now. So we go through, there's the whole free press era in the 1800s. We could, I talked about that. I talked about that a little bit in the book. But we go through the 1900s and that's when corporate media, this myth of objective journalism takes root. There's this idea that the sort of, what I call the reactionaries, come up with this idea that, oh, we'll just have uh, fair, unbiased, objective journalism. And because it's going to be fair, objective, and unbiased, you only really need one newspaper because it's going to be fair. Right. <laughs> and so what that justifies, yeah, that justifies consolidation. And so then, then little by little, these corporations start gobbling up more and more newspapers, radio stations, TV stations. And so we have, I mean, this, I'm really moving quickly, but um, no, it's fine. You're good. <laughs> yeah, we, we get to 2000, we get to 2005, and we're at five corporations own all of the all of the media organizations that money can buy. And it looks like that's the end of it. There's no more free press. It's like you got to you got to say what these big corporations that are advertisers want you to say, or it's not going to see print. But we have the new enlightenment birthing and the new enlightenment is being birthed because of the Internet. The internet is an invention at the magnitude. It might even be greater in magnitude. Certainly it's in the same conversation as the printing press because what it does 
It's, it goes even one step further. It's not only is it gonna be people that, you know, people that can read and write can now pr publish their writings and distribute them. It's anybody. I mean, I guess you have to have an internet connection, so, right? So there's still some floor, but we're talking, you know, it's probably two thirds of the population of the planet, right? Have, have the access to the internet. I don't know the latest numbers, but it's something like that. Might be higher now. Um, and anybody anywhere. And so what we're seeing is, you know, I can, you know, I can talk to you, we can upload this thing, somebody in Australia or, you know, uh, Ghana or Brazil can look at it and have their ideas shifted and changed. And, and there's no longer this top-down distribution of information because, you know, the New York Times and, and everything owned by Comcast and everything owned by Disney, this was starting, we're just starting to get back to the Catholic Church and this sort of top-down distribution of information, these labels like conspiracy theorists and disinformation where they can just sort of throw you on the rack and basically censor you in the modern sense. That's that's where we could be headed. So when I'm, when I'm not in my brighter moments, I'm like, oh, we're actually headed towards a real dark age where if censorship gets worse, I mean, technology can cut both ways. So you know, technology can also allow surveillance and you know, uh, facial recognition and biometrics and um, 1984 type of dystopian stuff could also be our future. So I, I wanna make it very clear, we have an obligation, we have a duty to use these rights, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, to preserve them and to read outside, to, to not just read a balanced media diet because it helps you maybe make a better decision about your life, which it will, but also because if we, if we don't use it, it goes away. And that's, that's the real danger is that we're going to let all of these freedoms go away. And um, there are a lot of people that would like it that way. Um, so that's sort of where I, where I position the new enlightenment we're in. It's unfolding. It's happening right now. I do believe we are headed into a better place with most of my, you know, consciousness, but I, I do have those darker moments um, that we are seeing the birth of this new enlightenment and it's going to give birth to a whole new set of rights and just a better, a better place. And it's an unveiling as well. It's an apocalypse in the sense, in the good sense of that word, where we're learning a lot of things, you know, Jeffrey Epstein, like, they concealed that for 20 years and maybe it would have gone on for another 10 years, but, but that came out and um, stuff with COVID and the pandemic, you know, that stuff is coming out much, much more quickly. Um, but there's a war for your mind. There's a battle. There's a, there's a war going on. And so, uh, so that's, that's, what's exciting about it. Yeah. I was going to tell you that, um, you know, I know people, not a lot that don't have a computer in the house, but they don't need a computer in the house when you have this, because you can always, you could do everything on this. You don't really need uh, the internet per se you know if you have a phone you're connected you know wirelessly they have all the 5g towers um i was gonna ask you go ahead. i'm sorry go ahead i just was gonna say i agree with you that the two-thirds of the world population I'm, that's not they don't have computers i'm saying right a phone that has some level of internet connection right you, you, there's ways to connect you know um i was gonna ask you because you you started to bring it up the cons of the enlightenment which which are the fact that we have all these freedoms with the internet and being able to express ourselves but some people use that in nefarious ways like i like i feel like it's okay if somebody has the freedom to express themselves but when they use it as a weapon i think that's negative is are there are, are there any cons to the first enlightenment and to the second enlightenment that you could bring to light well i've had i've had people say things like um you know i mean if if you if you sort of hanker back for, for like the hunter gatherer societies, um, you know, there certainly was something very beautiful about living close to nature 
um, before people were sort of herded into factories in the first industrial revolution or herded into office towers in the second one. And, you know, you live this sort of meaningless life and there's, you know, movies about this stuff. And, and so I think that's, that's when I've heard it attacked, it's usually saying this thing of like this sort of um, atomizing of knowledge where like the enlightenment was basically breaking down everything because that's what science ultimately is. And democracy is like breaking down smaller and smaller, like your perceptions of life so that you can then reproduce it and understand it. And, and in a certain sense, it takes us away from maybe the natural experience of life that we had when we were hunter gatherers, or even when we were just farmers out in the, in the fields. Um, I just think it's a tough argument to make because then you have to say, okay, so you want to get rid of all of technology. You don't want to have a car anymore. You don't have a phone. You want to, it's a hard life, man. Like living out there, hunter gatherer, like, yeah, you can romanticize about it, but a lot of people didn't make it. And it's a tough winter and like half your group dies and, you know, maybe the disease comes through and you didn't, you didn't shoot enough deer that winter. I mean, it's, you know, it wasn't like some like paradisical life. I mean, maybe for a year or two, it was paradise because you found a new lake over that mountain and you got to sit there and, you know, cook your, cook your meat and like cook your, and maybe raise some vegetables, but that's a tough life. So if you really want to say, you want to roll back the enlightenment and go back to sort of the pre-industrial era You've got to make that with your eyes open and knowing what that really means. Um, if you're willing to let go of everything, you're not going to have, you know, you're not going to probably have nice shoes anymore. You might not have any shoes anymore. You know, right. just think about these kinds of things. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Can, can you get into the, the, cause I, I know again, you hearing you talk in all the podcasts, very interesting mm -hmm. how you talked about the great Barrington declaration. Can you get into that? Sure. Yeah. So um, I, I love that topic. I don't know. <laughs> I think it was yeah, cool. No, it's great. And it's, it's, it's another one that was censored for no good reason um, or for maybe a very good reason. If you, if you peel the, peel the uh, layers back, right. I started writing red, white, and blind in 2019, like before any of the COVID pandemic stuff happened. So it was really interesting because I started writing about censorship and propaganda. And then all of a sudden it just like played out right in front of my eyes. Like it was worse than I had ever thought it was going to be. Um, and so the book got, both much easier to write and much harder to write because there's so much more to pack in there, but the cases became so obvious. So yeah, I mean, I talk about uh, the origin of the virus. That's a really obvious one, like why that was censored, but yeah. So the great Barrington declaration is another one. So great Barrington declaration is basically early, you know, mid 2020. Um, I mean, I, I think like a lot of people at the very beginning, like March and April of 2020, I was like, I mean, me and my wife and we, and my, we, our, our family, we went and went out and hiding for three weeks thinking like, okay, maybe this is going to be like a really awful thing and let's let it blow over. We can do three weeks or two weeks to stop the spread, you know? And then you come back and I could, and then it's like, I started reading and writing about it. It's like, okay, so it looks like this, this uh, virus isn't as bad as people thought that thought it was 10% fatality or 5% fatality. It turns out it's like less than 1% fatality. Um, and, you know, just starting to learn about it. And then we start doing these lockdowns and stuff like that. And the lockdowns, um, you know, they may have some mild benefit medically, but like, tremendous tremendously harmful to people's lives in terms of shutting down their economy shutting down their ability to see each other all this stuff so i started writing about it um asking questions and uh the great Barrington declaration was these some of the people that were thinking about this some of these like stanford professor oxford professor it's uh jay bhattacharya and martin Kaldorf at harvard were like look this whole approach to covid is is crazy you're gonna you're gonna basically um you know, kill people to save them, right? You're going to kill society to save it. What we need to do is recognize that this virus is 
far more dangerous to people that are older and people that have certain preconditions. And those people should be protected. So the idea was focus protection. And then we should let everybody else live their lives because we need to get to national immunity. And that's the only way this is going to blow over. And, and it was just brutally censored. It was just this, I thought very, so I wrote about it in one of my early emails to my subscribers back in, I think June of 2020. I was like, look, we're done. We, we've got a bunch of experts here. It's been signed by like 30,000 medical experts around the world. Barrington, Great Barrington Declaration. This is how we should handle COVID. We don't have to do anything more. Let's protect the people that are really, really at risk. Not just put them on ventilators where they 90% die, but actually think about protecting them. Maybe look at like early treatment options. And it was censored and there's, there's stuff that's not come out where, I mean, Fauci was talking to Francis Collins of NIH saying, who's taking this down? We need a, literally, he's like, we need a devastating published attack on this immediately. Not, this is an interesting, another approach to science. Science is about asking questions. Let's have a, let's have an intellectual debate between the Harvard, Stanford, Oxford professors who propose this and our NIH guys who propose this other thing, or me, Fauci, who proposes, you know, locking everybody down for months. No, it was like, let's censor this. Let's tear this down. And um, I think that will go down along with several other things, several of the other massive mistakes made, whether you call them mistakes or more deliberate uh, harm done to society. The censoring of the Great Barrington Declaration. And I know people, I know, I have friends who are at these universities who wanted to speak out in favor of it and were scared. Wow. And what, and what, what, what were they being threatened or, or they were scared because they knew something was coming down the pike if they kept talking about it? I mean, it's a little bit of an interesting question, right? So human nature is such that most people don't want to speak out. Most people don't want to take a risk, especially if they're, have tenure and have a six figure salary and like they've kind of made it. They don't necessarily want to speak out. Luckily for human nature, there is a percentage of people that will speak out and that have high integrity and can't live with themselves if they don't. But in the academic world, in the scientific world, we've reached a point. This is, I didn't know this in 2020. I was mystified. I now know this in retrospect, trying to understand how this happened, how so many people stayed silent. Um, there's a lot, number of factors. So one is what I just mentioned that sort of the human nature of people being timid combined with people being ensconced at very difficult to attain positions. There's a lot of people that want to get these tenured professor track positions that have the fancy salary and the fancy title. Um, they don't want to risk it. But there's also this element that there's a tremendous amount of financial uh, power wielded by the NIH, uh, which funds a huge amount of the, the grants and the studies at, at major universities. And so if you get on the wrong side of Fauci or Francis Collins or some of these people, you might not get your next grant. So that's another reason people are scared. And when it's very clear, it wasn't like Fauci and Collins, these people were like, well, we're not sure. We're waiting for the science to emerge. No, they were like, this is the answer. This is the way to think about it. And if you think about something else, you're a dissident, you're a fringe. They call people fringe doctors, like Jay Bhattacharya was considered fringe. Martin Kolderoff was considered fringe. He was the most cited, the most cited epidemiologist in the world. Right. So that happens. And then the third force is you have pharmaceuticals. So the big pharma, all of those billions of dollars that they were going to make from the vaccine, which they did, uh, made $30 billion or hundreds of billions of dollars, um, at least $30 billion, I'm saying that, but the number is much higher, I'm sure. All of that money also uh, 
has a profound effect on this because a lot of that money goes to fund things like the FDA and funding studies and funding science. And so if you want to write a study that's going to say, um, yeah, we're not so sure masks are useful, or it's probably better to wait five years before we try this vaccine, those studies were not going to get funded because who's right. going to take Nobody has any money to make from those studies. So that's why there are no studies coming out. Is ivermectin effective? Um, is hydroxychloroquine effective? There's nobody gonna fund those studies because those are generic drugs. And so eventually there were studies that were small and they were then attacked because they were too small and things like that. So I'm not saying that ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine cure COVID. We don't know because those studies haven't been funded. Or at this point there have been, and we do know that early treatment of some of these things was effective. Um, but anyway, I, I don't know if I'm exactly answering your question, but yeah, no, you are, you yeah, are. Yeah, that's, that's the Frank Barrington Declaration, and it is a crime. I think we will look back as you will look back on it as a crime against humanity that something like the Great Barrington Declaration was not followed early on, that we didn't realize the real way to treat COVID early on because it was being um, censored. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And the reason why I asked that question is because uh. Fauci has a history, and I don't know if you did any research on Fauci, and if you include that in your book, this past. So I've read, um, I've mostly read it. It's a thick, dense book, but uh, Robert Kennedy Jr.'s book on Fauci, and there's also a documentary that I watched. So I'm aware of a bit of it, um, his history with uh, HIV and HIV. There was also a movie that came out before COVID. I don't know if you remember it, the, uh, the Dallas Buyers Club. Um, which basically also goes into With, that, how yeah. uh, the NIH basically was, you know, was supporting drugs that were poisoning people. The whole AZ, uh, AZT is what it was. Yeah, AZT. There's a character in that Dallas Buyers Club, if you watch that movie, that like is not obviously Fauci, but is pretty much based on Fauci. And he's yeah. a he's a not a positive force in that movie. So yeah, the Dallas Buyers Club, that's uh, McConaughey. Right. Yeah, yeah, Matthew McConaughey. That's right. Yeah. yeah, no, it's worth watching now and and seeing how it it pertains to the current era. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's kind of like they're telling you, <laughs> they they were telling everybody what's going on. Um, I mean, yeah. I, go ahead. No, no, no. Go, 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 go. <laughs> I just wanted to take a step back because yes. you know, Red, White, and Blind is about the media, and I really like, I really focus on the media and why these stories are being censored and everything like that. But I think it's really important to notice one of the things that's not covered is what I call perverse incentives. And so perverse incentives in our capitalist system are places where <clears throat> it's more profitable to do things that are detrimental to society. And we don't talk about this often enough, but it's so obvious if you think about it. So like a weapons company, right? It's a little bit easier to talk about it now than it used to be, where you can say, look, this weapons company, they'd rather there be war. They're gonna make a lot more money if Ukraine, Russia just absolutely blows up because they're going to make tons of cash, right? So this is a company, this is a corporation, for-profit corporation, absolutely incentivized with every single molecule of its being to have more war, right? Then you have one that's a little less talked about, but I think we should in the wake of COVID is the pharmaceuticals, right? So, you know, these are the companies that make drugs for people, right? They make drugs and we usually think, you know, the war on drugs, drugs are bad, but some drugs are good. Um, and they are going to be highly incentivized for people to be sick. When people are sick, they're more likely to buy drugs. And they're going to be more highly incentivized to treat illness rather than cure illness, because curing illness removes your customer. So to really think about this and take a step back and say, okay, so when we see something like a pandemic come along or a war come along, 
It doesn't mean the war isn't just. It might be just, it might not be. It doesn't mean that we don't need a new drug to treat this new illness. We might, we might not, but it's worth it to, to take a step back and ask and say, let's distinguish the perverse incentives that are at play here because they may be highly detrimental to human society. Gotcha, gotcha, my man. Thank you. Um, so one, another question that I have, uh, what does our future hold? Um, they, they say it usually gets worse before it gets better. So what, what, do, you, what do you foresee in our future? Yes, yeah, so the last chapter of the book, I really go into what I see for the future. And I think we are in the midst of this new enlightenment. We're probably in the second quarter, if it's a four quarter football game or something like right. that. It's still, it's still unfolding. We're not to halftime yet. Um, it's going to be a fascinating time. Um, in the sense that it'll get worse before it'll get better, that's the sense that, that we're entering or we're already in a time without a consensual reality in the sense that if we tear down, like we've gone, we've gotten this far, right? Um, you know, if you talk to the older generations, they'll say, well, we would turn on Cronkite or, you know, and we'd know what was going on in the world. And that was sort of consensual reality. We agreed that's, that this is what Vietnam is. And this is what, um, you know, Ronald Reagan is all about. But we're entering a time now as the new enlightenment takes hold and where we're all getting our news from different places. And we're, we're following independent media and we're, learning media consciousness, that there's going to not be a consensual reality. And that's disconcerting for people. That's a tough, tough thing to go through where it's like, you and I don't agree on reality. We don't agree with what's, what's really happening. And so that's the element that there's some darkness to go through before we get to the light in the sense that there's going to be times where we're not going to agree on things. And those can be dangerous times. Those can be times when you do have wars and revolutions where one group of people thinks this is the problem. The other group of people thinks this is the problem. They have to fight it out. So I'm hopeful that we don't go there because I think we're, I mean, knock on wood, I hope that we're, uh, we're, here, I'll knock on wood. <laughs> I'm hopeful that uh, yeah, wherever you got some, um, that we're in a phase that because of the new enlightenment, it empowers us to directly connect with each other. So it's a lot harder to hate somebody and to want to pull a gun on them if you know them and you know they're also just trying to put food on the table for their family. They're also just hope, hoping that you know it's they're warm in the winter and maybe they get to do something meaningful with their lives. That's what you that's who humans are. We're all that. We're all doing those things. Um, so if we have that and we can connect with each other, I'm hopeful that we don't allow things to devolve into war. And that's also why my book I try to be sort of anti-polarizing. I see media consciousness as an anti-polarizing activity where if you go and you spend half your time or a third of your time reading what the other side reads, you might not agree with them. You might still have your views on abortion or vaccines or guns or the war or whatever it is, but you understand that viewpoint. And so now the person that thinks that isn't and the evil other person it, or the evil demon, it's somebody who disagrees with you and you can maybe like have them over for a beer and talk it out and see what they think, you know? So I think that the way out is through and we have to go through this time of not no consensual reality. But what it's allowing us to do is it's allowing us to see the truth about a lot more things. We're going to learn about the truth about a lot more things and it's going to be very powerful. And so I'm very hopeful that as we get here, we're, as we go through this time, uh, we're going to be living in a much more truthful world where we can connect with each other. We don't get divided and conquered into the red and blue camp and the men versus women and the white versus black and like all those kinds of things that 
you know, there's always some differences and people have some differences, but all that stuff is manipulated and driven home and, and pushed because divide and conquer is the uh, age old way to manage power. So how, how would you compare? Cause you, you were in China. How would you compare like their, like their life compared to ours? Like, what are we missing? You know? Yeah, so the Chinese, I mean, it's a beautiful country, amazing scenery, wonderful food, great people. I should make it clear, we don't want anything to do with their political system or their media system. They are right. uh, have an enlightenment there, not the first one, and I don't know if they're going to have the second one, we'll see. So they don't have the sense of the individual that we do. They don't have the sense of individual rights that we do. Um, it's, it's starting to grow there, uh, right. but it's, it's a very different culture in that sense. Um. You know, like the thing I said before, I mean, it's the same, you know, people want to put food on their family, put food on the table for their family. They want to have a meaningful life. They want to, you know, keep themselves warm and comfortable and, and all those things for sure. Um, what are we missing? Uh, I mean, I wrote a whole book about China, Double Happiness. It's, it's a lot. You know, yeah. there's, there are some things that, that in Western culture we miss for sure. There's some ways that we're, uh, you know, so unhappy discontent we're always you know there's an element where we're driven towards discontent um and always looking for something else and think our happiness lies outside of us and that's what double happiness is about is that there's there's this profound happiness that comes when you accept what is and and that's a spiritual a spiritual position and i found that wide brush here careful generalization coming you know might be mostly wrong but that in general chinese people are a little more <clears throat> A little more in touch with that idea of like this happiness that comes from just appreciating what is. Um, that's a profound thing, and it's it's a little more prevalent there. All right, and then so like this will be kind of like the last uh, last question. All right, so the title of your book, right, is Double Happiness: One Man's Tale of Love, Loss, and Wonder. What was the love, and what was the loss? Can you get into that? Sure. So double <laughs> happiness. Yeah. So. Um, well, there's a, I use those words in a couple of ways. So there is a love affair and it goes, it, it goes south. So there's some love and some loss uh, in China that, that I have. I meet somebody when I'm backpacking around the country and it's beautiful. And then it, it, you know, it goes away torn asunder and it's heartbreaking right. uh, for me at least. And you read the book and let me know what you thought. Right. Um, but there's more, there's more to it than that. I mean, really what's going on in double happiness is I'm a young American who is coming of age and so I'm kind of realizing that I have my own, my own keys to my own happiness lie inside of me. And so as I backpack around and the whole world is stripped away and I have to learn Chinese just to communicate with people, I realize that I've been pursuing this happiness by trying to always find something outside of me. And that there is, that, that happiness is real. Like I don't want to, that's why there's two happinesses. There's a double happiness that there is a, when you strive for a goal and you reach your goal, that is real happiness. And that is something we should do in our lives. And it's lives. And it's important to have a goal, have a dream, uh, move towards what's meaningful in your life. That's profound. And at the same time, the paradox is that we get just as much happiness and we get just as much contentment from noticing what already is, what already exists. The beauty of being alive, the beauty of being able to breathe and to um, have a mind that can learn, you know, like I was just learning Chinese and I, I didn't have to do anything. I mean, it was, it's tricky, but like you're already doing so much and to just be 
aware of that and just be present to what already is and what already exists. Be present and then look at what's right in front of you. Sometimes we, we, we ignore what's in front of us and we're too busy looking what's ahead of us, you know? Um, yeah, the problem is, is <clears throat> being aware of what you're longing for, you know, and then allowing yourself to allowing yourself to move towards it. Okay, and then um, I don't know if you've—I'm pretty sure you've heard recently that GOP is going after Biden. Um, do you know uh, what what do you, what are your thoughts on that? GOP is going after Biden. Well, sure. You mean the yeah? Because they in what way? Be, be more specific. Well, because they, they, I heard that there were certain things that they found out, like he was selling a lot of our gas reserves to China. Um, you know some other nefarious things. You know, the pedo stuff. So there's several things going on there, right? For sure. So there's right. um, so there's the Epstein stuff and there's ped pedophilia. I mean, it's it's just some of the most awful, nasty, disgusting stuff you can imagine. I mean, I, I write about that first in double in uh, red, white, and blind, because we have to acknowledge that there was a major, basically, a rape ring abusing girls, like snatching girls off the street and things like that, at the apex of Western power. I, it's, you just can't imagine, and it, and it was went away, went on for a quarter of a century, basically unreported, right? So that's that's atrocious. Those people should be behind bars forever, right. or at least you know, they should meet the full justice of the law. Um, and was Biden involved in that? I, I'm not sure. I haven't seen evidence of that. Um, certainly, the Clintons, you know, Bill Clinton was there on the Lolita Express a number of times. Um, I mentioned Trump as well, and so some Trump people get upset at me, but but there's flight records that Trump was there as well, although earlier on in the, in the 90s, not in the 2000s. Um, but I think the Biden stuff is a little more about Ukraine and about like like what I've seen is it's Hunter Biden on the, on the board of Burisma. Um, this latest stuff that came out with FTX yeah. is really fascinating. I mean, it's just absolutely crazy. This guy makes off with billions of dollars of people's money like almost everybody that invested in crypto on some level which is a lot of people at this point probably lost money to this thief and it looks like there was an element to which he was involved with biden and that there was some there was some kind of like you know an iran contra to really understand yeah. iran contra skin we had to understand this triangle of guns and money and and how it was one it's like that with the ftx thing it looks like people were donating crypto to ukraine uh, that was some of that money was coming out of the Biden, the Democrats, you know, sending money for weapons. And then that that money would go in crypto, which would be sent to FTX to translate that money. And then they would take a slice and they would donate it back to the Democratic Party. And so that helped the Democrats win in the midterms. And it was this whole triangle. Um, yeah, I think that's I think there's a lot of meat on that bone. I don't know enough about it yet. Right. But the, uh, the the Hunter Biden stuff with the with the laptop and what that showed about corruption in, in Ukraine with the Bidens. I think there's some meat on that bone as well. Um, I don't think it bodes well. I, I think that this uh, presidential administration is, is corrupt. I think so. Um, they probably all have been for quite a while. Uh, this one certainly is, is no better than the last and probably is worse, uh, probably a bit worse than the Trump administration. Right. I, I, I hope they don't get away with it, but I just have a bad feeling that they'll find a way to get, get out of it somehow. Um, now, I, I, like I told you in the beginning, I normally deal with like paranormal. I know it's a weird question, but I'm just going to ask, have you had any weird things happen to you? Any seen any UFOs or anything? I know you traveled abroad and uh, any weird things. 
No, but I'm always I'm always looking out for it. I'm I'm somebody who's like when I hear like a house is haunted, I like go in because I see if there's any ghosts or anything like do, that. Do you get any feeling when you're in there? <laughs> I haven't. I mean, I. Okay. So I have I, I certainly have a spiritual life and I have an awareness of, of a higher power. And so I, I notice the actions of the higher power sometimes. Um, but in terms of like a parent, is that paranormal? I, I don't think. But in terms of like the sort of and I don't you know, to be honest, I don't know your specific favorite topics and your sweet spot. But in terms of like UFO oh. or like <laughs> ghosts, like sort of <laughs> popping up right over there. <laughs> my wife says she has seen things. My wife will tell um, yeah, she'll tell me that she, you know, there's a spirit that she saw at this one particular place. Wow. I don't, I don't not believe her and I don't believe her. I'm just kind of like, okay. I mean, it's like, you know, it's almost like a religious question. Like I'm not going to tell you. I got you. It, it doesn't happen to everybody, you know, um, but it'll happen. One day you'll see something and then you'll, you'll think of me maybe. I don't know. <laughs> well, tell me, so what, what do you see or what are some things that you see? Oh, I was, I was in. well, my whole life has been essentially all paranormal. Wow. I, I I have these uh these things called shadow people. I don't know if you ever heard of it. I don't know if you're into any of it, but they they're like these um uh, I don't know they they're like these shadow people that I've seen in my whole life. I've also had uh UFO experiences while I was in the military. Before I joined the military, I still have them now. Um, there's possible cryptid stories that that I that I could talk about, you know, but I don't want to get deep into that, you know. But yeah, I've had a lot of experiences with things. Um. I'll send you actually a couple of interviews that I that people where people have interviewed me and I'll send them to you if you want to if you want to check it out. But sure. uh, Tony, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Um, now that the book is going to come out in January, I would imagine that's not where you're going to stop. What's next for you? Any documentaries? Uh, you know, are you going to be uh, doing any book signings or anything? Are you going to be doing any appearances? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I encourage people, um, if you want to find out more uh, or follow me or get the book, uh, go to TonyBrasunas.com. Or if you don't want to learn how to spell my last name, you can go to RedWhiteAndBlind.com. RedWhiteAndBlind.com will get you there. Um, yeah, the book will be out in January. I'm also launching my own. I have a YouTube channel. There's just not much there yet. And hopefully it doesn't get banned and censored and taken down. But I'm going to have my own show there that's going to get started up here in the next uh, couple of weeks. Where I'm going to be basically taking on issues that come up in the and also issues in the news on a regular daily basis, or not daily, but probably weekly basis, helping people to develop this media consciousness. The idea is to see, okay, here's a story in the news, this FTX, you know, collapse, what's going on, who are we going to believe about this, where do you find out, and like training your own, um, your own integrity radar, I would say, your own ability to, to get a sense of what is really going on here through a balanced media diet. So I'm going to be launching that. That's going to be um, on YouTube, Red, White, and Blind. And then there's also balancedmediadiet.com. And I'm going to be launching there a site where people can build their own balanced media diet. Awesome. So, so yeah, so, so and I have a Substack, which is where um, you should probably the best place to subscribe is the Substack, which is redwhiteandblind.substack.com. Uh, Tony Versun is, is, uh, is there as well. So yeah. Send me send me all the links and then I'll I'll include that in the description below. And uh if you're worried about YouTube, there's a another site called BitChute. I don't know if you ever heard of BitChute. Yeah, for sure. And Rumble. Um I'm gonna be right. there as well. Um I'm excited about Rumble. We'll see what happens. Um right. public a little while ago, and so it's it's it should start to have access to capital to to start to rival YouTube and functionality. And you need to be able to deliver 
a similar experience for people in terms of like all of the bells and whistles of YouTube and stuff like that. And Rumble is committed to free speech, at least that's right. what they're saying. So um, I'm optimistic we're moving into an era where that's one of the first things that's gonna change is the apps, the social media. We're gonna be moving towards, you know, the Facebooks and the Twitters, they're either gonna have to move towards free speech or they're gonna be replaced by the ones that do. Right. Uh, so I encourage us all, yeah, to use BitChute, use Rumble. Um, maybe don't try to build something on YouTube. Maybe I should practice what I preach. Uh, there's just a lot of people there on YouTube. So no, you, you know, you could do use YouTube and then just do clips yeah. and then have them go other places. Um, have you heard of Anchor? No, I don't know Anchor. Oh, Anchor is uh, is audio and video. And, and when you have an account with Anchor, it automatically uploads to Spotify. So you get oh. Anchor and Spotify. Cool. So, so if you want, I could send you a link to that if you want. And then, is there a site that, that would help you? You know, where you upload a video and then it goes on YouTube, BitChute, Rumble. I'm uh, looking. So I'm looking for that right now. <laughs> that would be cool because I don't. That would I'd be. I'd rather not have to manage. Right. All four I understand. Yes. Yeah, yeah I'm happens. pretty sure. I'm pretty sure it exists. Something exists. Yeah. I just haven't found it yet. Yeah. But yeah, that makes sense. But try. But I'll send you a link to to Anchor. Um, and if you could send me a, a thumbnail of a picture that you're good with, so I could like a picture of yourself, so I can use that as a thumbnail for for YouTube. And sure. then, like I said, just any links that you want people for sure to go to, I'll put that in the description. But again, thank you very much, Tony. Have a great Thanksgiving. Um, Chris, thanks so much, man. Very knowledgeable, and I'd love to have you back on in the future. Anytime, yeah, just yes, me. sir. Thank you. Have a great day. Thanks, Chris. You as well. Take care. Right.